Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Organic BC, a nonprofit organization that celebrates, champions, and advocates for the organic sector and broader organic community in British Columbia. Learn more at organicbc.org. My name's Jordan Marr. I'm a BC-based organic farmer, and I'm the host of this podcast. In late 2020, in light of uncertainty caused by the pandemic, Organic BC developed an alternative to its regular in-person annual conference. The conference was mostly online, and its centerpiece was a 40-episode podcast that it produced for conference ticket holders. Our intention was to eventually make these episodes available for free to the public, and what you're about to hear is one of those episodes. Our plan is to release them all on this podcast feed over the next few months. Meanwhile, the Organic BC Conference Committee is busy planning your next conference, which will, once again, take place in person. But it's also going to include a smaller slate of new podcast episodes to be released in January. I'll provide more info about all of that throughout the fall, but for now, I hope you enjoy this episode from the 2021 conference podcast. Oh, and by the way, we also incorporated the annual conference trade show into this podcast series, so we may or may not be taking a break in the middle of this episode for a short trip to that trade show. You'll know what I mean if you hear it. Okay, talk to you at the end, everybody. Every five years, the Canadian organic standards are updated to keep the standards current. Each update follows a multi-year process of review, during which anyone can submit requests and revisions. The whole process is overseen by the Canadian General Standards Board Technical Committee on Organic Agriculture. Anyway, the committee was required to produce an update by the end of 2020, and they did! Which is why it seemed very appropriate to invite known standards wonk Rochelle Eisen, jewel of the Similkamine, to give us an interview to help us understand the updates. I was not up to this task, but luckily, Organic Verification Officer Gavin Wright, aka the Enderby Ent, I assume because he's tall and wise, offered to conduct the interview. I'll let these two standard savants take it from here. Hi, this is Rochelle Eisen. I'm an organic inspector, a consultant, a standards geek, and I live in British Columbia. Oh, and I happen to be the current chair of the Standards Interpretation Committee of Canada. The Standards Interpretation Committee interprets the standard when there's a bit of confusion and adds clarity um, and makes binding interpretations of the standard. Great. <laughs> um, so I'd like to start and uh, first do a little introduction to the standards revision process because, um, as you have said, you have been living it for four years. So you know what it's about, and I think some of our listeners won't actually be familiar with the, with the whole process of standards revision. So, uh, starting out, just in general, what is the standards revision process? Why is it done? Uh, I think it's done for multiple reasons, Gavin, and one of them is, you know, we live in a world, a changing world, where science and knowledge changes on a constant basis. So uh, from an organic perspective, um, we're constantly raising the bar or trying to explain in greater detail what our aspirations are, are, are in terms of actual practices uh, for organic farming, livestock production, and preparation. Um, but from the technical so side, the standards are held by the uh, Canadian General Standards Board, who is the Secretariat of the Federal Government. And under their jurisdiction, there is a mandate that all standards that they hold on behalf of the public good have to be reviewed uh, on a five-year cycle. 
So those two things, our need to always review what we're doing and the regulatory requirement that the standards are reviewed, um, together create this opportunity where we are in a review cycle every five years. And I probably should qualify that. Every five years, a new revision has to be published. And if no changes are needed, then it's redated and re-released, as far as I understand. Or it, within the five-year cycle, you have to finish your review so you can be published on the anniversary of the uh, five years. If, if we don't complete the review, uh, the standard becomes redundant. Like we lo- it loses its status. It, it can't stay current. Great. And so in the process, who, um, who are the sort of main players that make it happen? The Canadian General Standards Board. Board yeah. Okay. They, yeah, they're the secretariat that actually see, uh, oversees the process of the review. So anybody in the world can, can make a petition for a change in the standard and send, and send that in, um, with their justification for why this uh, why this adjustment should be made, and then those um, petitions are essentially um, reviewed by different working groups based on the uh, based on what what section of the standards it would apply to. Um, so then, how, how who makes up those working groups, and how's that how's that sort of chosen? Okay, that was the right lead-in. Thank you, Gavin. Yeah, anybody can be on a working group. So, um, you know, Sprout Shoots and Microgreens is a small sector. And so the Organic Federation of Canada actually puts call, calls out to everybody who is a current organic sprout producer, shoot producer, microgreen producer, and says, hey, do you want to be on the working group to review this section of the standard? That's basically how it happens. And they do the same thing for every section, and they solicit people, and they keep track of everybody. Sometimes people go to the CGSB, and CGSB knows who wants to be on which working group. And it's a constantly changing thing because people's interests change, and the groups grow and shrink as the controversy changes. So like the poultry, and there was a task force as well. So this last round, I think there was a task force for poultry that had 40 people on it. And I might be exaggerating a little, but it was, you know, because there was a lot of controversy in the poultry group. And so that was a lot of producers, their representatives from their uh, producer associations were there, um, consultants, and just to, you know, work through and try to resolve um, the discrepancies in the standards that were causing um the disparity across the country. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite a process. So that so that so all of all of this is put together, and then it's the the Canadian General Standards Board, the CGSB, as you say, that actually writes the standard and and publish. Uh, no, no, no. We we write the standard, but they have final voice of authority in terms of clarity. Um, so that's great. Thank you so much for that. Uh, it's quite a complicated process for sure, but a very important one. And I think that gives, uh, that gives a really good snapshot of what happens. Um, and Gavin, Gavin, you know what, um, people should be paying attention now, like, cause you know, our next review is going to be in 2025. We have to publish again in 2025, which means working groups, technical committee seats, People have to start thinking about these now. And if people are interested in engaging in the review process, all they need to do is send an email 
to Nicole at the Organic Federation in Canada, express what they're interested in, and she'll just store that information. And then when things come up, she'll go through a system and start reaching out to people. So, Great. Yes. Thank you for yeah. that. That's important. So that's okay. Nicole Boudreau at the Organic Federation of Canada. Yes, sir. That'll be perfect. Wonderful. So now let's try to get into some of the specifics of revisions that have been done for 2020 and 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 just just to break down some of the most important big points that uh, that people will uh, people will be adjusting to as the new standard comes out. Now, as you say, it is published. Um, do you know when it will um, when it will in fact be uh, released to the public? Well, the publication date was sometime in November of 2020, and uh, so it should be publicly accessible anywhere anybody looks at it. All certifiers should be sending out the new standard to their applicants, um, because hopefully in 2021, everybody will be assessed to the new standard because they need to be compliant to the new standard in full by November 2021 on the anniversary of the publication date, except where an exception is stated otherwise in the standard. Excellent. Thank you. So it's an important thing for people to, uh, to get up to speed on and hopefully we can we can help a little bit with that just uh just highlighting some of the main points so um let's um ideally start with the crop section of the standards and so we're talking section five of 32 310 in the standards what are the what are sort of some main some of the um biggest changes there the most important changes there i well, yeah. yeah, go ahead. You, you speak first. Well, it's good. I understand that there is um, that there is a, there's some change for um, for treated posts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, uh, treated posts up to now have had a commercial availability clause that if you couldn't find an alternative to treated posts, you could use treated posts. Uh, that commercial availability clause has now been removed in the 2020 standard. And basically, because it turns out people were were missing the intention of why the prohibition on treated wood was there, and they were misusing the commercial availability sort of loophole, if I may be so bold to say it that way. And because there's so many alternative materials available, everybody has to bite the bullet now, and when they need to buy posts, are going to have to buy alternatives to uh, CCA treated posts. That's it. Excellent. End of story. Yeah. Okay. And so um, that's that's short and clear. And so um, I understand there's also been a change in 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 treated seeds and and what is being called treated seeds. Um, <laughs> we tried to make it clear. It's still so complicated. Um, yeah, because organic seed are going to be organic seed, and you can pelletize. You can prime, you can do anything to an organic seed as long as you do it with an organic materials. Um, but it's what is on not, non-organic seed that became the issue. So primed is a whole new concept that we are not going to get into in this call because no. either you know what prime is or you don't. But so we have addressed prime. And so when seeds are primed and it's the primed with things that aren't listed in the PSL, those seeds are still permitted as long as the non-listed product is not a pesticide. 
So if there's fertilizer, if there's a growth regulator, that's not listed and they're primed with that, that's fine. As, lo- as, um, as long as they're, they've documented their commercial availability search that the um, organic equivalent is not available. Correct. Yes. I'm already down on the weeds. I assumed that you couldn't find the organic seed, and now you want to use these primed non-organic seed, and these non-organic seeds are primed with uh, fertilizer. Yeah, you will be able to use those. Okay. And let's see, the other big thing that happened in seeds is we made it very, well, in seeds and in, in transplanting. So in annual seed transplants, we've never s- spoken to the growing conditions for annual seedling production. And um, because of what happened in the greenhouse section, um, it had impact on the seed and transplant section of crop. And basically, there's now an exemption in 5.32 that allows for the production of annual seedlings under 100% artificial lighting for the first transplanting, up to the first transplanting. So this means that people can continue to grow their seedlings in their garages, in their basements with artificial lighting and for 100% artificial lighting up until the first transplant. And that was never spoken to before in the standard. It was always done and everybody always allowed it. But because of lighting issues that came up in greenhouse, this extra clause got shoved into 5.33 now to make sure people understood what they could do. Right. So this is a whole new, a whole new clause in the standard um, that, yeah. that in the crop specific standard that will, um, that will cover transplant. Transplants and seedlings. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's great. Okay. And yeah. uh, I think you want to talk about 311 crops too. Yeah. So let's, um, we can shift now to the um, permitted substances list, 32.311, because um, I think there is, there is a significant sort of a, a change in, <laughs> in, in, in there, correct? Well, uh, okay. So we probably should start with... Um, the biggest thing that happened in the whole standard is we single-handedly removed the word synthetic throughout the standard as effectively as we could because everybody, everybody was struggling on trying to understand what we were trying to mean by synthetic. And uh, the word synthetic got replaced non-natural or something. I can't remember something not from nature, and it just was getting too complicated. So now the PSL is very clear. We're looking for products derived from nature or from a biological source or from a mineral source, and nobody has to spend a lot of time trying to establish any longer if a substance is non-synthetic or synthetic. They just have to know what the source is, and that will tell you if if it's compliant with the standard and for crop what also has been done is there was two big tables before we used to have table 4.2 and 4.3 4.2 was soil amendments 4.3 was crop production aids and there was a lot of overlap in the two tables and a lot of the listings have the same annotations and so to help drive everybody even more further crazy they've combined the two two tables together into one table 4.2 with two separate columns 
and the annotations, if, if, if there's different annotations for the different uses, it's still pulled out, but in most cases, the substances are good for both columns or it identifies which column it is. So people are going to have to adjust their language around what, when they're talking about the PSL because now it's going to be 4.2 column 1, which is soil nutrients and or crop nutrients, and uh, 4.2 column 2 is going to be crop production aids. Right, but that does sound to me like it, uh, it makes sense as, uh, as a way to organize things and, and make it a little simpler to, uh, to use the permitted substances list um, as a guide. I, I think so, and I, another thing is it reduces what, now, now that we've got this done, it was a lot of work. Um, it's going <laughs> to reduce the maintenance um, because you don't have to look at double listings all the time to see if they're the same. They're right beside each other, so you can tell. Yeah, so it, it is, this is a very big improvement for the crop section. It wasn't done in livestock because there's not a lot of overlap there, and it was not done in preparation because we didn't have two tables, we have three tables. And there's too many different ways to look at things. And uh, if I could be so bold, I don't want to be the one to do that merge. Like, somebody else could take that work on for a change. <laughs> How's that sound? For sure. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it makes sense, and and I because I think that you know, um, I have seen some confusion with like, well, just for example, say sulfur, right? Because sulfur can be used as a um, as a fungicide on what was um, formerly Table Four Point Three, and it can be used as a as a soil amendment uh, um, in a granular form, but. Uh, but there was always some confusion because there's products that are meant for um, to be used as a fungicide, and then there's products that are meant to be used as a soil amendment, right? And so I think that and and you still get the sulfur benefit from from a pesticide too, or or a new a crop nutrient spray because it will reduce the pH at some level. So there's always going to be some impact. So calling them in two separate columns sometimes didn't make sense. Right. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, is that? I mean, is, is that sort of a? Is that sort of a good snapshot of of the changes that have been made in the permitted substances list? Knowing that we can't, not going to get down into any great detail. I think those are the important things. I think people just need to spend the time getting reorientated because their references are all going to be wrong. I'm hoping um, all the certifiers. Um, now that we're, we've got published standards, I hope they've all been able to amend their um, applications or their organic system plans to help facilitate, you know, the movement to the 2020 standard. But it, there was a lot of work to do, and there's a lot of things that had to be adjusted. So I'm hoping they've had enough time to get that work done by January. Right. Okay, well, can we move then to... Um to just quickly look at um, the livestock. So this would be section six of the 32.310, the standard. Um, sure. There's one um, that I have seen, uh, one change that I, that's, that I, I've, is quite significant is the, um, uh, the treated milk for calves um, because this is something right. that's been discussed in the, in the dairy industry for some time. And so I understand there's been an adjustment um, in 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 the the permissibility of 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 treated um, of you know milk from treated dams for being fed to calves. 
Yes. Um, up to now, you weren't allowed to use that milk for feeding calves. And uh, the petition made the case that, you know, most of these things that we treat animals with have withdrawal times of a week. And so can't we split the difference and just, you know, put a two-week prohibition on the use of that treated milk? And then after that two-week period, that milk could be fed to the calves. And upon reflection, um, the Livestock Working Group supported that revision and the Technical Committee supported that revision. And so that's one of the major changes that has been placed in the standard, in the 2020 standard. Yeah, and, it, and, and, and that's great. And I think it'll make a, because, you know, the, if, a, if a cow is treated with, with uh, antibiotics, then, um, you know, their milk must be withdrawn from the organic milk for 30 days, right? That, that hasn't changed. Um, that has changed. But yep. in the past, as you say, um, that milk could also not be treated or could not be fed to the calves. And it seems like now um, there will still obviously be a, uh, a withholding time of, of, of um, well, 14 days or, or twice the or twice the label limit. But, um, you know, there may be that sort of the, the last two weeks of of that withdrawal time that milk could be fed to the calves and previously that milk was 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 generally just getting dumped down the drain because there wasn't anything that could be done with it so so you mentioned the uh the poultry working group uh earlier and and a lot of the debates that happened there so um there are sort of uh i i I see two kind of um significant changes um in poultry um you know, that, uh, that deal with, um, overhead cover outside and then the use of, um, enriched verandas, which I think used to be called winter gardens, um, for, um, climate areas. So can you, can you speak a bit to those? Well, let, can I go on record first that this is not my area of expertise, that you probably can actually do a better job on these than I can. Um, but I'll mumble along and then you can definitely save me on this. Um, so the basic underlying problem that we had up to this revision is uh, a misunderstanding on the intent of the standard about the requirements for poultry to access the outdoors. And so the kerfuffle that happened through this review process was trying to level the playing field that even short-lived meat birds would either have access to full outdoor conditions or a modified environment such as the enriched veranda, a.k.a. winter gardens. They're interchangeable, I think. And basically, it's a space that's not outdoors, but it's not in the barn. And they it's enriched because they can scratch. They'll have things to play with. I think toys are part of the requirement. I might be exaggerating a little, but they're, they're, they're not going to be stuck in an enclosed barn for the entire production cycle. And Gavin, that's just probably as good as I can do. Um, and, and that's the outdoor cover was also a critical part because one of the reasons why the birds weren't going out is they're really understory birds. And so if you just have an open pasture where there's no protection from predators, from sun, whatever, 
the birds were, would be hanging around underneath the eaves of the buildings and or and, and most of them would be blocking the doors so because that's where they could get out of the sun, get feel a little protected, and the rest of the flock couldn't get out. So by creating other cover out in the outdoor space, well, it will allow for the birds to have more confidence to move out into the outdoor spaces. Absolutely, yeah, and I, I think I think I think you've nailed it. Um, yeah, and it's you know it, it's it's a significant. In my experience, I mean, it's it's a significant change um, in that it really will, uh, in, bo- in both cases, but now I'm speaking of the having the outdoor overhead cover, um, it really will make a difference in terms of how many birds are getting outside. Um, it's also a significant change in that it is going to require some um, adjustment from operators, but... But I think that's a good thing, right? As you say, that's I mean that's part of part of the goal with the organic standards is that all of those birds are getting outside um, and that it's comfortable for them to get outside, right? So exactly. Now I think there's a, a an extended deadline for some of that work to be done for the poultry producers. Do you remember? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I'm seeing uh, uh, by November 2023, there'll there will be a plan to ensure that there's at least 10% of the range area under cover, and um, and that the oh okay, so the plan needs to be up by 2023, and then the the actual it needs to actually be um, enacted and have 10% coverage by 2025. So so there is time for adjustment. And for the enriched verandas, uh, I think in 6.133E3, there's a bunch of deadlines down there. And it looks like by 2030, oh, no, it's too complicated, but there's some exemptions for people who have stuff and for the new construction. So there's a 2025 deadline and a 2030 deadline. And so people have to look into those things. So there's no expectation that all these things are going to happen immediately. Everybody's very aware there's going to be capital expenditures required and a a, a retraining on, you know, it's going to take an adaptation. It's just that this will, this fits better with our belief about animal welfare, animal behavior, and holds up our principles about why we're doing this. So, that's why we had to we had to flush this out. It had to, it came down to a lot of hard people doing a lot of hard work. So let's hope <laughs> it progresses well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, agreed. Uh, it's and they're important changes, and um, and let's hope it progresses well. What else do you want to talk about? Did you want to talk about uh, forage shortages and that catastrophic feed stuff, or we just have to warn people that there's been some added language added in around. Um, forage shortages due to uh, catastrophic events on farms versus regional uh, forage shortages because of climate. So people need to make sure they read both parts of those if that might have an impact on them. So catastrophic event is like you have a fire and your barns are destroyed. What are your allowances for feed and stuff like that versus uh, climate change impacts? Right. And I think that's um, I think that's perfect the way you've uh, the way you've outlined it there that um, that there have been some changes in that in those areas and that people should uh, make sure they read into the standards to make sure they understand um, uh, 
how that applies to them. Yeah. Uh, I did want to talk quickly because I, you know, there was, there was, there was a big sort of sudden realization with, uh, with, with bees, um, apiaries and honey production, um, in terms of winter feeding and, and a, and an adjustment made, um, there based on what was heard back from the industry. Yep. Yeah. And again, if you remember, Gavin, this was triggered by a question to the standards interpretation committee and, you know, the Standards Interpretation Committee is bound by the language in the standard, and so we can't interpret things different than what the intention was at the time of when the writing was done. So the thing that happened with the bees was quite phenomenal. All I, um, most of us, most people thought that organic honey bees were being fed organic honey or organic sugar over the winter. But reality... For many, many reasons, it turns out that was far from the case. Most organic bees were being fed non-organic, non-GE sugar water over the winter. And so a question came into the SIC, hey, can I keep doing this? Like, is this just a standard practice? Is this allowed? And the standard was very clear. No, no, that's an exception. It's not allowed practice. That could happen year in, year out, every, every winter. And so the SIC response that went public created this response from the sector saying, hey, you're shutting us down. And there was a, a B task force struck at the last minute under the review process to hash out the revision to 7.111, which dealt with regional and seasonal feed shortages. And now it's, it's a little more complicated and there's a lot of science um, that points to that feeding pure sugar is advantageous over feeding honey because um, there's no um, impurities in sugar, in the pure sugar, and therefore when the bees poop, they don't leave any residues in the honey, in the hive, if that's where they're pooping. And uh, so there was a lot of science that came out of this that we learned. Um, and the other thing we really did learn is that most of the large producers don't buy organic sugar and add water and make the syrup that they need. They actually purchase tank loads, tanker loads of liquefied organic, uh, liquefied sugar. And that currently there is no large supplier of liquefied organic sugar. So there's a business opportunity we know out there that there's a market because now they have to, now there's a hierarchical preference of what these bees should be fed and it's all outlined in that section of the standard. But it, it, it was it was fascinating to be listening to all these beekeepers and all the the dynamics of how challenging it was to feed because when you 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 wonder well why don't you just buy the the granulated sugar and mix it all yourself and then they started talking about the number of tanks they needed how long it took to um, to dissolve that stir it the labor the transferring to tanks versus just buying liquefied sugar already I, I never would have thought it was a problem. <laughs> Okay, so um, we, we would be remiss if we didn't touch on uh, the uh, greenhouse section since uh, and, and sprouts, shoots, and microgreens, since that's your... Would we? Would we? <laughs> no, it's not my... <laughs> well, I, okay. I mean, I guess I mean, we'll do it basically, but um, 
you know, my understanding, like the, the, the one thing that jumped out at me is that there's actually a, a title change. So it's not called Greenhouse anymore. And it and it sort of applies to um, it, it the, what it applies to has been more defined. And um, uh, yeah. Right. So what so what when when we talk about seven point five or, or what have you, the greenhouse section, what uh, what are we talking about now? Everything that nobody else wants to talk about. <laughs> basically so yeah it it we're all going to call it the greenhouse section it's inevitable because you know it's it's that historical thing and everybody's going to get confused i think it's called crop structures or something like that now and what it is is how do you define a greenhouse like what are we talking about so people said well i'm not growing in a greenhouse so that section's not pertinent to me so we had to spend a lot of time just trying to tease apart what we were talking about. And it's basically anything that has a modified climate in it where you're, you're controlling the temperatures. Um, and, and it also, the section had to cover containers. So all the things that aren't grown in the ground, that are grown in containers, are impacted, are covered by 7.5 now. And uh, so, but what's not covered by 7.5 are high tunnels or hoop houses, anything that doesn't have uh, humidity control, lights, or heat, or or any of those things. So if it's just you got a tunnel out in your field, stay in section, well, clause 5. Don't come over to clause 7.5. You don't need to waste your time with that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think, and, and there was confusion about that before, and 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 so I think that's a, I think that's a great change to make sure that people know that, yeah, if you just have a, if you just have a hoop house um, in the field, um, and you're growing in the ground, then um, you just stay in in clause five crops. Um, yep. But then the one the one other thing. So the the seven point five is technically called um, crops grown in structures or containers. And so um, the other change is that now um, a container production um, that's um, that's outdoors would actually be covered in this section. So. But it would you know it always was. It was never clear that it was though, because how would you have assessed the soil in the pot anyways? You would have had to come into 7.5 before. It just, there was no, it wasn't clear. Because you don't take field soil and put them in pots and grow a crop. You always used artificial soil mixes. So you had to have been in 7.5 to make any sense out of it. Right. But at least now it's clear that that's, um, so that, uh, (laughs) because I I suspect that there were I mean I agree that you had to be in 7.5 to make any sense of it but that's why people were confused because they weren't in 7.5 and so they weren't <laughs> making any sense of it right that's... what they they couldn't read my head like what's going on here <laughs> I you know and, it, and it's very sad because you, you, they, these sections were written with the best of intention like I, the greenhouse section I think it was written in like 1999. And never had really been um, reviewed in any big way because there had been so many other priorities. So this is the first time this section of the, the, the this clause of the standard got as thorough a uh, assessment from stem to stern, and that's why there's so many changes. Like it's just like you'll be colorblind when you look at that. So other changes that took place in this. Um, 
soil mixes. There's more information on what makes up a soil mix and what type of soil mix is allowed and what's permitted in the soil mix. Um, we also expanded the volume of soil required per crop. Um, in the previous version, there was only a soil volume required for staked greenhouse crops. Now we've dealt with all crops because we have so much more knowledge about what size container actually is effective for container growing. And the key reason why the volume requirement is there is so there's no, um, that we don't end up with very poor soils that have to be fertilized with liquid fertilizers on a constant basis because that's doesn't align with organic principles. That's more aligning with, you know, our prohibition on hydroponics. So that's why the soil volume becomes important because the soil volume that you start with should be a sufficient volume to sustain the crop for its crop cycle. Makes, okay? makes perfect sense. And then, of course, the biggest, biggest change in the greenhouse section, which caused so much controversy for everybody and really divided a lot of the community is lighting. And in the end, uh, you cannot grow crops in a crop structure under 100% artificial light, period. That's it. There has to be sunlight, natural light. And that's... That was six months of my life right there in one sentence. <laughs> and that's and that's spelt out in... Um, in uh... You know, much more clear language now that that is the case. I mean, that was that was the case really before, but um, but it was a little more cryptic, right? And 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 there were potential for loopholes, as you say. But um, it, it's very clear now in seven five four that. Uh, but you know what? I'm not happy with it. If I don't know if this is the right time to talk this, uh, I. There was a very strong petition that said, you know, exceptions should be made for northern climates, uh, you know, so that indoor growing under 100% artificial light would be permitted. And um, a lot of science went into those petitions, but I, I think we voted emotionally uh, to prohibit 100% artificial lighting. We, we, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens in the 2025 review. Um, who's left at the table? Who in the sector is still... Um, holding strong on to the idea that artificial lighting doesn't align with organic principles. Um, and, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that discussion if I'm still around in 2025. Yeah, me too. I, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's an important discussion and, and yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't involved in this one, but that is, it is one that uh, I, I'd like to hear the arguments on all sides for sure. You, you don't have enough hours to listen to I, what we went through, I know. <laughs> honestly. But definitely, uh, you know, if people are interested in this topic, even now, like if, if this is what motivates you, this is an, a great example where you send in an email to the Organic Federation of Canada and say, you know, for the 2025 review, I would be very interested in discussing artificial lighting in its role in maybe livestock production and in, in crop production. And, and that is helpful for the sector because that means more people are going to be thinking about this further out. We can do more due diligence. We can reach out to more scientists because at one of the argumentations against artificial lighting was that the biome created under artificial light was not the same as the biome under outside natural light. 
and that. And, and it was harmful for insects and stuff like that. Good. Okay, listen. So uh, we moved into the preparation section into Clause 9. Um, and we're looking at um, water subtraction and, uh, and evaluation of non-agricultural sub-ingredients, correct? Yes, it's a very technical thing. So um, oh, well, let's talk about baking powder. Baking powder is made up of multiple compounds. Uh, some of them, baking powder is not listed in the permitted substance list, so you'd have to look up each compound in the baking powder. Um, and some of the some of the some of those items in the baking powder are they're not functional in the finished product. They're just carriers for the baking powder, so that that the enzyme in it or whatever is spread around evenly and can be distributed evenly in the finished product. So 9.12 basically saying, hey, if the sub-ingredient isn't functional in the final product, it's just functional in the ingredient to help with spreading or whatever, we don't care if it's not listed anymore. Right. So this is going to reduce the amount of work that has to be done for some ingredients. Not all. Uh, and it'll just take... It'll, it'll take time for everybody to figure this out. But it was, we were running into too many um, non-organic ingredients that people need to use that um, were not available in a compliant form. And so, us, like some things have um, preservatives in it, and it's a preservative just to sustain the shelf life of the non-organic ingredient. It has nothing to do with the final product. And so this is this was one of the major changes that we had to do. Now, the next one, uh, the 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 presence, the evaluation of water in an ingredient, though, actually is going to increase the burden for some people, especially especially people who buy ingredients that contain water. So a soup manufacturer who buys a liquid base. Okay, so the up to the 2020 review, if uh, a manufacturer bought a liquefied product, a soup base, the whole soup, you know, let, let's say it was, um, it was tomato base, okay? The only ingredients were water and, and tomatoes. That was considered 100% organic because we considered that the water became one with the tomatoes, so that was 100%. Well, it turns out that's not working out correctly, uh, we need to subtract out that water from purchased ingredients when doing the organic content uh, calculation for the product. So it's going to change the math. It means people need to know how much water is contained in every ingredient they buy, liquid ingredient that they buy, so they can subtract out that water. And what was happening wasn't a problem that much in soups. It was more in um, plant-based beverages that sometimes things were qualifying as greater than 95% organic when in reality they weren't if you subtracted out the purchased water. Right. And that's, and that's really where it makes a big difference, right? So it would be... Yeah. You gave an example of a hundred percent, but but where it would be really relevant would be if it was if it was less than a hundred percent 
Um, but you know, say it was at 97%, but then once you yes. pulled out the water, um, yes. it would actually drop below 95. And so it is a significant difference, right? A significant. Yes. Yeah. Especially in anything that, where you had sugar too. Yeah. So, uh, this, this is a, it was, it, I was very hesitant to make this move and it took me a long, long time. It took a lot of math, a lot of Excel spreadsheets to finally convince me that we had to change this mask because now every uh, ingredient supplier has to be more transparent on their water content for their liquid ingredients. There you go. And those Ooh. are the major changes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's end on the big We're one. End, yeah. Ending on that. the doozy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully not everybody has, is a, listening to this is a manufacturer. Hopefully a lot of people have just turned off when we finished crops already and didn't listen to anything else after that. But, <laughs> there you go. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I hope they did stick around for the uh, greenhouse, though, because I think that's relevant to a lot of crop producers, right? So. Yeah, yeah. And Gavin, hey, we could do this again. Like when people, if, if people ask a bunch of questions after the podcast and want clarity, oh, we just have to give them your phone number, right? We just have because you'd help them, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, we can we 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 can just say that uh, that 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 they can look me up, right? That's how about right. That? You're yeah. on speed dial, yeah. right? <laughs> there you go. Anything else, my my dear Kevin? Anything else I can do for you at this point? Uh, well, no, this has been really wonderful, and it's been great chatting with you, Rochelle. Um, but yeah, no, I would only ask you if there's any if there's anything else that we definitely uh, that we definitely should touch on before we sign off. Um, well, if uh, maybe we should say, look, if people are um, don't understand the standard, they've spoken with their certifier, and there's a, there's confusion. Don't forget, there's the interpretations that are posted by the SIC that will help people, and the questions. Um, for the SIC has been updated or, or by, by January 2020 would have been updated to the 2020 standard and, and that the standard interpretation committee is there to help interpret these things. So we'd, we'd be more than happy to help people understand the standard. Right, Gavin? Absolutely, we would. Yeah, and, that's, and that, is a, that is a great note to end on that um that you know keep in mind that those uh, the the question and answers um posted to the standards interpretation committee are are a part of the standard right and so they're an important thing to read along with the standard and if there's any need, you know help needed in interpreting to uh, to just send a question and we'll uh, we'll answer it and we sort of anticipate that there will be lots of well hopefully maybe not lots but there will be some questions that are generated just based on the changes um in the 2020 standards exactly exactly well said yep okay lovely well it was absolutely brilliant talking to you and we will do it again soon and um yeah, we should maybe maybe we'll do this again. If a bunch of questions come in, then we can just get on get on the phone and record another podcast. That'd be awesome. This was this was a lot of fun. Thanks, Gavin. Okay, cool. Thanks, Michelle. Okay. Talk to you later. Okay, bye. Bye. All right, that's it for now. Special thanks for our podcast music goes out to Matt Eckel, a jazz flutist and father of organic rancher Aubin Banwell. You can search for Matt's music online. 
Eckle is spelled E-A-K-L-E. I also want to thank all of the guest interviewers you'll be hearing in this series as we re-release it over the next few months. Gavin Wright, Molly Thurston, Abra Bryn, Tristan Banwell, and Emma Holmes. Thanks to all of you for your contributions to the show. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed what you just heard. I'm Jordan Marr, and I will talk to you soon. 